Well, I will turn 55 years old in, uh, in a month or so. Thank you, I don't look 55 years old. <laughs> you've heard the phrase, black don't crack? Some of you heard that? A Asian don't raisin, that's just a truism. We age very gracefully. Um, when I turned 50 years old, I did what a lot of folks do at these landmark birthdays. When you turn 30, you turn 40, you turn 50, you make these kind of promises for what this decade is going to be like. Right? So I made the same promise when I was 40, but I made this promise when I was 50. This is the decade I'm going to get in shape. This is the decade I'm going to get physically fit. I'm going to exercise more regularly. It hasn't happened yet, but I'm halfway through, but it hasn't happened yet. But I thought to myself, this is what I'm going to do. Now, I'm an academic, I'm a professor, and I do what academics do, which is research. So I said, I'm going to take this very seriously, I'm going to do some academic research. So I went to the academic researcher's number one tool, you might have heard of it, it's called Google. So I go on Google and I type in, what exercise should I do to get better fitness in my age? And the answer popped up, uh, CrossFit. Have any of you heard of this, CrossFit? Now, I, I researched it a little bit further, and I found out that the, the uh, philosophy of CrossFit is actually a wonderful philosophy that I could really connect to. The philosophy is called muscle confusion. And when I read that, I said, oh, that's my approach to exercise. It's been my approach my entire life, and the way I've applied it is I don't go to the gym for months, and then when I go to the gym, my muscles are really confused why they are there, and they're really angry and hard. Um, so the idea of confusion... And uh, CrossFit is the idea that if you confuse or disrupt your regular patterns and you create a discomfort around your body, so you do all these different types of exercises and you confuse your body, that actually could be a good thing. Confusion, disruption might actually lead to health and physical well-being. I began to think about the parallel to that for maybe that's also a part of our spiritual lives that spiritual disruption, discomfort, dis-ease might actually be of benefit to us in our spiritual well-being. Uh, I read this quote from uh, Richard Sennett. He's a, a NYU professor, and he writes, without a disturbed sense of ourselves, why would any of us ever want to change? And I mean, if, we, if our lives are content and we like the status quo and things are going relatively well for us, there's no reason, there's no motivation to change the course of our lives. Without a disturbed sense of ourselves, why would any of us want to change? And as was mentioned, I wrote on the Book of Lamentations as a commentary on the Biblical Book of Lamentations. And of course, I spent five years working on it. I've sold about five copies because nobody wants a book on lament. Nobody cares about lament. And lament is not a topic that is often explored in the church or practiced in the church. And this is some research that I did. There were kind of two different researchers that did this. Uh, Denise Hopkins at Wesley Seminary, a, uh, uh, um, a professor of Old Testament, uh, was examining liturgical traditions in America. And that would be the Catholic Church, the Lutherans, the Methodists, uh, these kind of churches that are guided by a liturgy and a particular way of passages that are read so that you kind of go through the whole Bible in about three, four years or so. Uh, but what she found is that these liturgical churches, the Methodists, the Catholics, and the, and the Anglicans, etc., when it came time to read a lament psalm or to sing a lament hymn, they dropped it and replaced the lament psalms with a happier hymn or a happier psalm. 
Another study was done exploring Baptist and Presbyterian hymnals. Uh, this was done by Glenn Pemberton. And Dr. Pemberton was looking at the ways that hymns reflected the worship of Old Testament Israel. Now, the worship book for Old Testament Israel, as you know, is the book of Psalms, 150 chapters, 150 different expressions of worship. Of the 150 different expressions of worship, 60 to 65% of those hymns are uh, psalms, or what we call psalms of praise and celebration, and about 30 to 40, 35 to 40% of the hymns, so about 40% of the hymns are uh, psalms of what we call psalms of lament. So think about that. 60% are psalms of praise, celebration, all the good things that God has done, worthy, worthwhile singing about. But 40%, not quite half, but a pretty decent percentage of the psalms are about suffering, lament, and pain. But what Pemberton found is that in the Baptist hymnals and Presbyterian hymnals, 80 to 85% of the hymns are hymns about celebration, victory, triumph. And only 15, 20% of the hymns are about suffering and pain. I decided to do a similar study with contemporary Christian worship. And contemporary Christian worship, if you know, is licensed by one major company in the United States. It's called CCLI, the Contemporary Christian Licensing Incorporated. Good to know Christian music is owned by an incorporation. So all of Christian music is incorporated. And so you, in order to get permission to project the words on a screen or in your bulletin, you're supposed to let them know and write a little number, CCLI number, and let them know that you've used this in worship settings. And so they collect this, uh, uh, all this data and they have to keep it very accurate. Why? Because that's how they distribute the royalties to the songwriters. So every year they publish a very important list, the top 100 contemporary Christian worship songs that are sing in the, sung in the United States. They publish it actually every August. Now, that list, the top 100 most popular songs, um, I went through and looked at every single lyric of every single, no, I mean, sorry, I made my TA go through every single lyric <laughs> That's what they're for. <laughs> he went through, I checked his work. He went through every lyric in every song. And I said, find out what percentage of the top 100 Christian worship songs are what we would call psalms of celebration and victory and what are songs of uh, lament and suffering. How many of you say, just like in the Bible, that 40 out of the top 100 most popular songs are songs of lament and suffering? How about, how about 25%? of our songs are songs of lament. How about 15%? How about 10%? About 5 to 10 out of the top 100 popular worship songs are songs that you might categorize as lament. And I was using the word lament as generously as I possibly could. The song starts out, I cry out. Oh yes, lament song. The rest of it is, I cry out for joy. I still counted it. There just were so few lament songs. So in our patterns of behavior, our worship, our interactions with one another, our church life, we tend to emphasize victory and triumph, and we tend to de-emphasize or not talk about lament and suffering. So what does that do to our spirituality when we have no discomfort, when we have no disruption, when we are satisfied and victoriously, triumphantly singing about the victory of our day-to-day -day status quo life, that we do not see maybe there are places of pain and suffering that we need to cry out to God to intercede. Well, what's happening in the book of Lamentations is exactly that moment of crisis. 
It is, I would argue, the most challenging and maybe the lowest point in Israel's history. Lamentations chapter 1 verse 1 reads, How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she who was once great among the nations. She who was a queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Some of you know this passage or know the context of this passage. Israel at one point had been this great nation under King David and King Solomon. David was a great military leader and expanded the military boundaries of Israel. Solomon was a great economic leader and expanded the treasury and wealth of Israel. So David and Solomon were kind of seen as the pinnacle of Israel's history. But some of you know the rest of the biblical story, which is that the following kings were not as godly, were not not worshippers of Yahweh. They they were uh, disobedient, they were idolaters, and the nation slowly begins to slip. And uh, at this point that we encounter the nation of Israel... This once great nation under King David and Solomon was now in dire straits. In fact, we read about this in the next verse where it says, Bitterly she weeps at night, tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. And if you know the story of exile in the Bible, exile is the ultimate punishment from God. It is the worst thing that God can do to his people. And that's exactly the moment that we encounter the book of Lamentations. It is the lowest moment in Israel's history. They've lost everything. They've lost their leadership. They've lost their identity as God's people. They've lost their homes. Their families have been torn apart. Everything they saw as what, were, what blessed them by, was blessed by God was absolutely all of it was taken away. This is the worst moment in their history After affliction and harsh labor, Judah has gone into exile. Now, given that moment, Israel actually has a few options about how they might respond to this pain and suffering. The first option I want to talk about is not the right option, but it was an option to them. And that option was to run away and hide when difficult circumstances arise. The challenges arise and difficult situations arise. And that first option is to run away and hide And the prophet Jeremiah writes to the people in exile, and this is what Yahweh says to the prophet Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease, but seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. This statement would have blown the people of God away. They would have said, what in the world are you talking about, Jeremiah? Because when you see the phrase, seek the peace, and particularly when a city is attached to it, what city do you seek the peace of? Seek the peace of Jerusalem. Almost every single time in the Bible, this being one of the very rare exceptions, seek the peace of Jerusalem. Totally makes sense. Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Jerusalem was established by David. Jerusalem is the center of the promised land. Of course you seek the peace of God, the shalom of God in Jerusalem. But this verse in Jeremiah 29 says, seek the peace not of Jerusalem, but seek the peace of Babylon. Babylon. Of all places to seek the peace of. Babylon 
the, the symbol of all that is wrong with the world in contrast to Jerusalem. All throughout the Bible, Jerusalem is God's heavenly city. Babylon is the wicked and evil city. Jerusalem is Santa Monica. Babylon is Malibu. Jerusalem is, is all the good that is in the world. Babylon is Hollywood, Wall Street, capital, uh, the capital of all of Las Vegas. All of that rolled into one is Babylon. And yet God says, seek the peace of Babylon. In other words, if we are God's people and you're in the midst of distress and challenge and difficulty, we're still not allowed to run away and hide. Even if in the midst of the worst situation imaginable, you never have the option of running away and hiding. That is not an option for the people of God. Instead, what we are directed towards is a lament, an honest truth-telling about the world around us. Brueggemann puts it this way, when we lost the sense of understanding lament, we lost our sense of seeking justice. Because lament points to an injustice in the world, and we cry out to the God of justice for the justice of God to intervene in that injustice. The absence of lament has meant the absence of crying out for justice by God's people. This book, uh, the book of Lamentations, does a, a, a wonderful job of calling us to lament. In the worst of circumstances imaginable, Jeremiah, uh, um, the book of Lamentations, calls us to enter into not a running away and hiding, but enter into lament. I'll, I'll mention this one thing about the book of Lamentations in a way of introduction. The authorship of the book of Lamentations, five chapters, has always been in question. The main question is, well, who could have written the book of Lamentations? As I mentioned, Lamentations is written at the time of exile. Meaning that exile, by the way, if you understand what happened in exile, exile was when not every single person in Jerusalem was taken away. It was actually the learned, the intellectuals, the prophets, the, pre the kings, those who could read or write, anybody they thought, men, who could rebuild the city of Jerusalem, they took away into exile. That's why you know about the story of Daniel and his friends. They were part of the exile. Who do they leave behind? They left behind the illiterate. They left behind the widows and the orphans, the women, the children, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and the sick. All those who could rebuild Israel, taken away. Those who they, they deemed less worthy were the ones that remained in the city of Jerusalem. And so... When you talk about who wrote the book of Lamentations, well, there are no candidates who are left because nobody in that city could read or write. They were all taken away, except we know that there was one candidate who was allowed to stay, and that was the prophet Jeremiah. We know through history that Jeremiah was the only prophet that was allowed to stay behind in the city of Jerusalem. So Jeremiah has often been credited with the authorship of the book of Lamentations. But here's the problem with Jeremiah's authorship of Lamentations. If you read the book of Jeremiah and you compare the book to Lamentations, it sounds like two different authors altogether. Uh, I say like Jeremiah is like Shakespeare and Lamentations is like uh, Kendrick Lamar. Very, very different styles of writing. Now, I always have to gauge my audience. Kendrick didn't seem to go too well here. <laughs> Bob Dylan, would that be a better, better example? So you got two writers who are both great writers but you would never say they're the same person because the style of writing is so different. And that's what you see with Jeremiah and Lamentations. So how do you explain who wrote the book of Lamentations? My argument is that Jeremiah wrote down the words. 
He was the only literate person left in Jerusalem. But here's what happens. After the fall of Jerusalem, people go to the town square and they all gather together and Jeremiah is there. But he's not in the front. He's in the back. And the ones that are speaking up are the widows, the orphans, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and the sick. All those who are the marginalized of society, their voices rise up and Jeremiah the prophet shuts his mouth and writes down their words. That's why Lamentations is the most feminine book of the Bible. Because he's writing the words of the women that have lost their husbands and lost their children, lost their families. Their voices, the, the lament of the women in the community, their voices rise up. And Jeremiah speaks from not his own privileged male voice, but he speaks from the voices of the women that have suffered the most. There's one lesson that can be learned there. We need to listen to women more when it comes to things about justice and injustice. Let the voices of women rise up, and sometimes the privileged voices, maybe we shut our mouths so that the voices can rise up. I say this because lament requires a change in thinking that says it is not my privileged voice that needs to speak the loudest, but it is the voice of those that have suffered. That's the true lament that is needed. Uh, before I moved to uh, uh, Pasadena to take on my role here at Fuller Seminary, I taught at North Park Seminary in Chicago for many, many years. And for the last four years, uh, prior to moving here, I worked uh, at, a, at a, a maximum security prison called Stateville Correctional Center. I was on the faculty of North Park, and we had an um, a education program at Stateville Correctional Center. Uh, Stateville is the max prison that is about 45 minutes outside of the city of Chicago. So if you know anything about kind of long-term facilities, those who are in urban settings end up in these uh, kind of isolated areas about 45 minutes to an hour outside of the city uh, where the crime might have been committed, they move them very far away. Uh, we started a program where we're starting to teach master's degree programs and bachelor's degree programs to the uh, incarcerated uh, students. Um, now, you might, if, if you see me standing next to uh, Pastor Tim, you'll see how I'm, I'm a short guy. I'm a, I'm a short Asian guy. That was redundant. I'm a short Asian guy. I'm not, you know, athletic or very fit. Uh, so I'm walking in there, five foot seven, pudgy Asian guy, walking into prison, and I'm walking into this room, and everybody in my class, mostly African American and Latinos, uh, probably 90% people of color, men of color, and I'm walking into this classroom of 20 students, and they're all six foot eight, and six foot five, and six foot two, and not just six foot two, but cut and buff and and I'm this little tiny Asian guy walking in and I've got to establish my power in that classroom right I mean, what else am I going to do I, I can't walk into this classroom and be the the wimpy Asian so I put it on my, my 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 most powerful persona which comes from my intellectual accomplishments so I talk about my degrees and my I have two master's degrees and two doctorate degrees and I graduated from this Ivy League school and this Ivy League school and I lay it on thick to let them know I'm a tenured full faculty professor at a seminary. I lay it on thick and let them know who's in charge of that classroom. Now to their credit, my students were extraordinarily generous and my students were extraordinarily kind and they put up with my showiness for many, many weeks. But that didn't last long. At about the eight or nine week mark, um, things began to kind of fall apart. Uh, it was during those eight to nine weeks that almost everything that could go wrong in my life started to go wrong. And everything began to kind of come together in this classroom. 
So I remember at about the 8-9 read mark after I kind of had established my authority and my position as the faculty who was in charge of the classroom, at that mark I, I couldn't take it anymore. I, I really, the pressures of life, I really couldn't bring it together. And so I started falling apart a little bit in the classroom. I sat, instead of standing, I sat in a chair and I, I, I was just about to fall apart. And I remember this so vividly because it was, it was my, uh, my dear brother Corzell, south side of Chicago, African-American, grew up in, 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 a, in a rough neighborhood. Uh, a long, long prison sentence was in front of him. Uh, he comes over, and he whispers in my ear. He says, I'm going to get in trouble for what I'm about to do, but I really think you need this. And then he hugs me, and he holds me, and he just lets me cry in his arms for several minutes. Now, at that moment, it was not the Ivy League-educated professor and the person with a life sentence. It was two men made in the image of God lamenting together. Power, position, privilege meant nothing. It was two broken people in the presence of God crying out for God's mercy and justice. Lamentations brings us back to that point of honesty before God. All the airs we put on about our bank accounts, our degrees, our accomplishments, all of that goes out the window when it comes to lament. It is just your brokenness before God, crying out to God. Would you be that kind of person that goes into the world, seeking the broken lives and lamenting alongside those, and lamenting also your story? Can we be those kind of people that the world really needs the church to be? The world doesn't need the church to be triumphant and victorious. The world needs to see the church that is broken and in lament on behalf of the suffering in the world. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of lament, and may we embrace that gift. In your name we pray. Amen.